From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg. Grab a stool and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told. And you are among friends. The Psychic Adventures of Natasha Rose Wood is coming up towards the bottom of the hour. Natasha joins us from Kelowna, British Columbia, to tell us about her remarkable life as a psychic, spiritual healer, medium, past life regression therapist, and ghostbuster. Coming up this half hour, a new regular feature on the program, the first Sunday of every month, we welcome David John Oates the discoverer of reverse speech to the show, and he'll play some more amazing reverse speech clips. He's also coming to Toronto this month, and I'll tell you more about that in a moment. Owen Wolf is my technical producer. Ryan White is my live stream producer. However, no live stream tonight because of the holiday. Uh, this broadcast, however, will make its way up to the YouTube channel in a few days. The YouTube channel is Strange Planet. And don't forget to hit that red sub button. And don't forget to visit the website, strangeplanet.ca. A little box will pop up asking you for your email. Be sure to fill that out, and then you'll receive my free newsletter, which launches this month. And once you register, you qualify for a monthly draw for some great Strange Planet merch, t-shirts, mugs, etc., from my Strange Planet shop. All right, time to hear some reverse speech. David John Oates is the founder and developer of reverse speech technologies. He was the first person to ever document speech reversals in human speech in 1983 and has worked extensively since then on research and development as well as maintaining a therapeutic and consulting practice. He's the author of It's Only a Metaphor, Reverse Speech, A New Theory About Language, Reverse Speech, Voices from the Unconscious, and Beyond Backward Masking. And together with Christian Dicadieu, he is the co-host of the podcast Reverse Speech Radio. New episodes drop every Thursday, and you can listen and subscribe at reversespeechradio.libsen.com. David John Oates, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm doing very well, Richard. Thank you for having me back on, as always. The pace of the news is dizzying. Absolutely. What do you want to do tonight? What do you want to talk about? Okay, well, I thought I might cover some of the initial theoretical development of reverse speech. Way back 30 years ago, when I, uh, when I really first started developing the theory, and one of the first things that my original research partner, Greg Albrecht, and myself, who has sadly since passed away, but one of the first things that Greg and I first noticed was what we called the principle of complementarity. That is, the forwards and the reverse relate to each other. And there's this direct relationship between the forwards and reverse dialogue. Sometimes it'll be confirming the forwards, sometimes it'll be contradictory to the forwards, but there will always be this, this, this contextual relationship. For example, uh, let me find a, uh, classic example of a congruent reversal. Okay, so here's, uh, here's, uh, Bill Clinton talking about the need to go after Osama bin Laden. There is more, um, agreement than at first it appears about the necessity to push this thing through to the end. He's talking about Osama bin Laden, and he says backwards, let's shoot for the assassin. Let's shoot for the assassin. Let's shoot for the assassin. 
So he's talking about pushing this thing forwards and backwards. We are tapping into his inner thoughts, and he does. He intends to shoot for the assassin. So it's a congruent reversal. He's thinking the same thing as he's saying forwards. So, uh, so we call that a congruent, congruent reversal. A rare and moment look- of honesty from uh, Slick Willie. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well then, okay, okay, so then let's find an incongruent reversal on uh, Slick Willie. Oh, here's a funny one. This is in his uh, 96 uh, debate uh, with Bob Dole, and he was running for a second re-election, for, for re-election. So, and they're talking about the income tax. Senator Dole, speaking of your tax plan, do you still think that's a good idea, the 15% across the board tax cut? Oh, yes, and you'll be eligible. And... Uh, <laughs> So will the, Me too. So will the former president. Yes. That's good. So. I need it. Well, the people need it. That's the point. So he says, I need. In other words, I need the tax cut. I need it. But backwards, he says, we do not. Did he not? Did he not? So we have a contradiction. Did he not? No, he says one thing forward, I need it. But backwards, we do not. Considering all the wealth of the Clintons have accrued over the years, I'm <laughs> sure they sure they don't mind a few little tax jabs here and then. Right, those reversals are so clear. Uh, yeah. It's so it's so evident. Yeah, yeah. Look, I've been saying this for years. I mean, uh, yeah, look, look. One of the one of the criticisms of reverse speech, of course, is that you know this is all pareidolia. You know, where you're only uh, we're only hearing this because you want us to hear it, but it, it, it's just not the case. Like you said, these are so clear, and they just jump out of the gibberish. And uh, um, can you get, uh, can you play one and see if I can, without you telling me what the reversal is, oh, to sure. see if I can hear it? All right. Okay. So here's here's Joe Biden, and he's uh, he's praising our troops. You are the most capable warriors in the history of the world. There has never, 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 never been a fighting force as capable as you are. Okay. This is a fairly easy one, I think. So here it is at three speeds. You're chicken. You're chicken. You're chicken. Oh my! He didn't say that. You're chicken. Yes, exactly oh, what he dear said. Dear Lord. <laughs> That's, he got it spot on. Absolutely. Oh. Absolutely. So that knocks a pareidolia argument on its head right there, okay? I mean, if I was just auto-suggesting this, then, okay, here, let's throw another one at you. This is, this is Bob Dole again, and he's resigning from the Senate. You do not lay claim to the office you hold. It lays claim to you. Your obligation is to bring to it the gifts you can of labor and honesty, and then to depart with grace. Okay, here it is, backwards. It's an honor. It's an honor. It's an honor. But what do you hear? It's an honor, clearly. It's an honor. So there's a congruency. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it's a congruent reversal. He's saying the same thing backwards as he's saying forwards. So I, th- I threw a couple of easy ones at you there. Uh, uh, here, see if you can get this one on Hillary Clinton. Okay, we're, we're, we're just throwing them out here. This is what I call an internal command. And this is, she's talking to herself. So here's the, here's the forwards. I have spent a very long time, my entire adult life, 
looking for ways to even the odds to help people have a chance to get ahead. Okay, here it is backwards. A little bit harder. What did you hear? Oh, be quiet. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, exactly correct. Oh, be quiet. She's talking to herself there? Yeah, she did. Yeah, this is her spirit talking to her and telling her, well, you shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Even her spirit doesn't want to hear her anymore. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. And now we're looking at, she may be... She may be running again. I don't know whether she will or not, but she's all over the news right now. She's everywhere. Right. Well, it looks like Joe Biden is uh, going to get knocked out. Uh, And, yeah, she sees maybe she has now a a path to the nomination. I love it when, though, she says, I can beat him again. 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 I know. I know. I know where these people get get their thinking from. Um... Uh, look, I'm sitting back and I'm watching this and I'm, I'm just, I'm just shaking my head in disbelief at, at the shenanigans in America. It's incredible. Anyway. It's, a, it's a circus. Now, do you find yeah. I- that if someone uh, is a dishonest person, yeah. then are the majority of their reversals, uh, a, a lie or, I mean, or do honest people also lie during their reversals? Uh, interesting question. Um, well, yes, we all lie. <laughs> I mean, to say we don't lie is to be in total denial. You know, yes, we all lie. We all lie to ourselves. We all lie to others. It's unfortunately it's part of our human nature. However, that being said, there are more congruent reversal. Well, particularly when I work with my clients, there's more congruent reversal than you might than you might realise. Um, uh, uh, so I'm just contradicting what I said earlier, but m- the majority of people I work with are basically honest, okay? However, they are in not in contact with some of their deeper psychological desires that are driving them. And in that case, they can be incongruent. And a lot of my work is in finding these incongruities. Let me see if I can pull one out real quick that's incongruent. Oh, yeah, here we go. The businessman is talking about his business, okay, and he's being basically honest. But we have an incongruent reversal that is pointing to hidden another behavioural drive. So here's the forwards. This is an Australian accent. I hope you can get it. Okay, so on that question, what needs to happen to keep it moving? Uh, what do I need to do to keep it moving? I need to stay on top of my uh, on top of my office work. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yeah, you know, keeping up with my quotes and getting them out on time, and my following up on time. Okay, so he's speaking quite positively. For I've got to stay on top of my office work. But backwards, he says, my ass again, and ass is lack of self-respect. My ass again, I am an idiot. My ass again, I am an idiot. My ass again, I am an idiot. So obviously, my ass again, I am an idiot. So that's obviously an unconscious desire that he's not aware of. Actually, when I played in the verse, I said, do you, do you, do you call yourself an idiot? And, and he said, well, yes, I do, all the time. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Wow. So that so that's an obviously an incongruent reversal, but it's an unconscious drive um, that needs to be fixed. Right. He's not being deceptive when he's no. speaking forward. He's not being deceptive. 
whereas in these cases with politicians, obviously they are there's a there's an element of deception there. Do, who who lies more in your experience after examining countless reversals over the years? Who lies more, criminals or politicians? Oh, what an interesting question! Oh dear. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh heavens. Um, I don't even know how to answer that. I would have to say politicians. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the criminals I've got on file, at least being honest about their crimes, <laughs> you know, uh, like Ted Bundy. I mean, I got some amazing confessions from Ted Bundy, but he's confessing forwards too in some of them as well. Right, you know? right. So there's a level of congruity there, but oh, gee, I've got some doozies on politicians. Um, I should pull up one on uh, uh, some of them I can't play. Um, I've got a really funny one on George Bush. Let me see if I can pull this one up real quick. This is uh, this is uh, George W. Bush and uh, and uh, George Bush Jr. Of course, and uh, he's uh, talking about looking forward to working with the Senate. So here we go. Today, the federal government Council of Economic Advisors released a report that estimates the bipartisan agreement reached this week can save 300,000 American jobs. Oh, okay. So he doesn't say he's in the Senate fours, but backwards he says, Senate, they're all first-year losers. That is so <laughs> clear. I would have gotten that one. You didn't have to prompt yeah. me. I, oh, I could have... Sorry, yeah. yeah. Right, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm so used to doing that. I got, I got to stop doing that. It's just a habit. So, but you do raise an interesting point. These reversals are so clear, and I have got 30 years of them on my computer. I mean, I, I've just been waiting, waiting for someone to wake up one day and realise, gee whiz, we've got this amazing resource sitting down there in Adelaide, Australia. We need to tap into it. So, uh, so, and on that note, I've got some more news, some good news. For those who've been waiting for the Reverse Speaks documentary, it is only just around the corner. We've had some movement on that front that just happened yesterday. Um, uh, A TV I'm, documentary? Uh, well, that's yes. Uh, uh, we haven't had a consult to a network yet, but all the footage has been shot, and the editing process is going to start in about four weeks. So we'll have a completed documentary ready to go in about three months, I would say. Fantastic. So, yep, yep. And then we start shopping it around. But uh, for those of you who've been waiting for the documentary, we're getting very very close so good news all the way around and i'll be meeting with the production people in when i'm in la so uh, to get that kicked off finally fantastic david john oates my guest and again he's coming to toronto saturday october the 26th at the greek metamorphosis orthodox church 40 donlins avenue from 2 to 4 p.m there'll be a this is a free event and there'll be a workshop on reverse speech which will be run by Christian Decadur from Reverse Speech Radio. That's happening, same location, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. I'll be there. Come on down, say hello. Again, a free event, Saturday, October 26th, 40 Donlins Avenue, Metamorphosis Greek Orthodox Church, just steps from the Donlins subway station. Um, what else do you have for us? Do you have another reversal? Uh, yeah, let's pull one up real quick here, shall we? Uh, here, uh, I'm trying to think of one I haven't played you. Here, here, let's see if you can get this one. This is a nice easy one. This is uh, Anna Nicole Smith, the late Anna Nicole Smith, drunk at the Oscars. 
And if I ever record an album, I want this guy to produce my, make me beautiful duets. Cause he's freaking genius! As you can hear, she's obviously drunk. She's staggering all over the stage and she says this backwards. See if you can get this. What'd you get there? The first word I got was naked. Oh, interesting. Okay, I got it down as make you seasick. I'll play it again. Oh, yeah, yeah, seasick. Okay, make you seasick. Right, yes. What does that mean? What is she on about? Oh, well, looking at looking at her on stage is you could almost be seasick oh i see <laughs> wobble, you know and she's drooling so she's slurring her words oh. and the alcohol making her all crazy poor thing See? what a tragic figure yeah she really was recently uh on reverse speech radio you guys did an episode on john wayne gacy oh yes indeed tell me about that what did you discover yeah, oh, truly evil man. Uh, of course, you don't need reversals to say that. Here's one that's a basic confession. That I'm, I'm a homosexual thrill killer, that I stroll down the street and stalk young boys. And got murdered, did did they die? Murdered, did they die? Murdered, did they die? Yeah. Murdered, did they die? Yeah. So, you know, he's not talking about going down the supermarket to uh, to buy some bread. <laughs> no, no. Uh, and and I need to stress that that's one of the things I wanted to get across in this uh, in the interview today was the principle of complementarity. And there's always this contextual relationship between the forwards and the reverse right, dialogue. Right, every time, which again is further evidence that yep. this is actual, you know, this is real, this is going on. Right. Right, he's exactly right. That's probably the first thing that convinced me back in 87 when I originally wrote the theory of reverse speech. It's the first thing that really convinced me that that Greg and I were onto something was there was always this contextual relationship. And the very first reversal I ever heard on speech was I ran it back because I didn't know what was on the forwards and I heard the two words spacewalk. I thought, gee, what's that? And I Played it forward to hear Neil Armstrong walking on the moon, and I go, "Wow, wow!" It was it just totally blew me away, and uh, found that in '87. Complementarity—that's the secret. All right, David. Uh, I look forward to seeing you Saturday, October 26th, at the yep. Free Reverse Speech event. And uh, oh, in the meantime, we should also point people uh, towards the Reverse Speech Radio podcast. New episodes every Thursday, and they can go to reversespeech.ca for more information, or reversespeechradio.libsen.com. Yes, indeed. And listen to the show. You one comes out every week. All right, David. Have a great flight. We'll see you soon. Okay, see you soon. Stay tuned. The Psychic Adventures of Natasha Rosewood is next. Take a look around. What do you really see? 
This is where you can tell all about it. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. After surviving life in her large, chaotic family in Oxfordshire, England, and as a reincarnation of a gypsy, Natasha Rosewood found her niche as a flight attendant, and while traveling extensively also learned palmistry. The study of metaphysics would become her passion. While living in Switzerland, Norway, Germany, and Libya, she acquired the languages of those countries as well as learning basic Italian and Spanish before immigrating to British Columbia. Since 1995, Natasha finally surrendered to her fate as a full-time psychic. She's evolved from palm reader to psychic coach, facilitating spiritual healing and psychic development, offering corporate and private workshops, and writing her three books and columns, as well as her other services, where she offers private phone or online consultations to people groups around the world. She's also a past life regression therapist and a ghostbuster. Natasha Rosewood, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Well, I'm pretty well, Richard. Thank you very much. I'm very excited to be speaking with you tonight. So, so thank you for having me on. Ah, my pleasure. I love the title of, uh, well, two of your books, ARG, I Think I'm Psychic and You Can Be Too. That ARG part of the title, you know, that's something, you know, one might say when you discover you're sick, like, ARG, I think I have chicken pox. Uh, it doesn't sound like being psychic was something you chose for yourself. No, it really wasn't. And the book is about my reluctant psychic, psychic awakening. And there was a bit of a story to that, Richard, when I'd been in Canada about six months and I was going to see psychics here. And they all said, oh, you're so psychic. And I said, don't tell me that. You know, I, I loved everything metaphysical. I was so curious. But I didn't want to be called a psychic. And I know I'm not alone in that. So when my sister-in-law called me up and she confirmed that this reading I had done had come true in every little sense of the word, I went, ah, I think I'm psychic. So that's where this title came ah, from. <laughs> so you just didn't do like a, a reading and found that you had this ability, I'm guessing. I mean, how did your psychic abilities first start to manifest and when? Well, I think it starts with curiosity and fascination and I would, I can remember being 10, 11, 12 years old and really wanting to figure out what made people tick. And then when I got into my teens and I grew up in the UK and we grew up in a culture of ghost stories and, um, everything's woo woo. And so I was always fascinated by the invisible. And then when I got to my late teens, I started studying astrology, the I Ching, numerology, and I think I was trying to find which uh, path I was going to pursue. And I found this book on palmistry actually when I was 22, just as I started my flying career. And I didn't think I was psychic at all. I just thought um, I was picking stuff picking up information from the lines on people's hands and I would grab people and willing volunteers and say listen I don't know what I'm doing so don't take me seriously and I would start reading what I thought I was getting the information from the lines and people were just shocked at what I could sense and feel and I went wow you mean I'm right and they went oh my god yes so that kind of spooked me and it took me another eight years before I came to Canada before I really started to think, you know what, I think I've got something here. And it just got stronger and stronger and stronger. The more I used it, the stronger it got. Had you started to realize some of those psychic abilities while you were working as a flight attendant? I think I was very fascinated. We would make regular 
visits to psychics, you know, girls who fly in our 20s, we're wondering when our Mr. Wright's going to show up or, you know, uh, where we're going to move or what's going to happen. And I think I started to feel like there was something going on for me there. I was definitely very fascinated. Um, people would say to me, I was a witch and a catalyst. I would make things happen. I would put couples together or find people jobs and I just know instinctively what was going to happen. But I would not have called myself a psychic at that time. It took me a very long, um, quite a few years to be able to say, yes, I am psychic. So there were inklings of it, but I was in denial. <laughs> hmm. I'm just, I'm wondering, you know, imagining rather what would happen when a psychic flight attendant suddenly gets, let's say, a bad vibe when she's on board a plane. Did anything like that ever happen? Oh, well, there were bad vibes about passengers, and I used to go in for flights, and I worked for an airline that really worked us very, very hard, and I'd be exhausted, and I'd be thinking, oh, no, I think something's going to happen on the flight tonight, and I'm really not up for it, but I think I was confusing at that time my fatigue with my intuition and so now I actually teach people how to distinguish between fear and intuition or fatigue and intuition because people sometimes get those emotions mixed up with what they're sensing um, but I didn't there was one flight where I was called out for we were all called out on this um uh, November evening, and I hate to say it, but it was a dark and stormy night. Of course. And, and I never felt good when we were all called out. It felt like, ooh, I don't like the feeling of this. And sure enough, it was a flight from Gatwick into Stuttgart, which is about two and a half hour flight on a very old plane called a Comet. And um, we landed, but then the there was no reverse thrust, and the aircraft went barreling down the runway, and we all went into a brace position thinking that maybe we were going to crash into another aircraft or something, and then suddenly all the brakes came on last minute. turned out that the rudder on the back of the plane, the tailplane, which was attached to the main fuselage by three metal struts, the bottom, sorry, the top two ones had become, had broken. So the tailplane, the rudder of the plane, <laughs> was hanging off just by this one thin strut. And I don't know how we landed and how we survived. Thank God there were no crosswinds that night. But I was right to have that feeling of like dread because um, one more flight or, you know, crosswinds of even 60 miles an hour could have put us into a spin and we it would not have been a good ending to that story. I wouldn't be telling it to you right now. <laughs> no, no. My word. <laughs> You mentioned a couple of things I want to just circle back on. One was the difference between exhaustion, fear, and intuition. Just yes. break that down a little bit for me because I don't tend to think of exhaustion as an emotion. So how can exhaustion ever be confused with intuition? Well, I speak from experience because when I was flying, I actually went through a bout of nervous exhaustion, which I write about in my book, and it started out with physical exhaustion. And because I had no strength, it also became, um, my, ne my nerves were very, my emotions were very battered from stuff I was going through in my private life. And then I was being overworked, um, as a flight attendant. I speak five languages and they, they made me work summer and winter kind of nonstop. And I was, it was a compilation. It was a compounding of all those, um, 
events for me. And then I would, when I was in that state of exhaustion, I became depressed because I think I was angry about some things that had gone on and I wasn't expressing them. I became anxious and I would confuse my anxiety and sense of dread with, oh my God, something bad's going to happen. And it was really my anxiety and not anything intuitive that I was feeling. So I think a lot of us, when we're physically exhausted or uh, we're we're all very overwhelmed right now, I think, by technology and the the stress to be on everything at, at all times. Um, I think there's a lot of anxiety around. I certainly notice it with my clients, and my clients will often say, oh, I feel this sense of dread, and I think something really bad's going to happen. And I say, well, let's separate that, what's happening in your life that's giving you the potential anxiety, and separate it from the intu- what might be an intuitive feeling. So it's to really define where that sense of dread is coming from, that anxiety is coming from. Ah, okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, yes, it does. It does. Okay, okay, good. Now, and and I think oh, yeah. you, you go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. You 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 keep going. You're on a roll here. I love it. Okay, because I think what's going on right now with mental health and. Um, you know, the shootings in the U.S. and we've got our own events happening in Canada as well. It's not exclusive to the U.S. by any stretch of the imagination. I think there's my sense of what's going on in the world. There's this kind of massive tension that's happening and it's, it's compounded, I think, by technology, by, um, social media and having to live up to something. Um, Kids are worried about the future of the environment. They're very real, real fears going on. So again, all our feelings and our emotions are being kind of convoluted. At the same time, I'm sure you're aware of this, Richard, the electromagnetic energy on the planet is increasing. It's rising of the, on the earth and uh, us humans are also, I think we've doubled our electromagnetic energy in the last 15 years. And as you know, the suicide rate has increased by 33% in the last, I think, 19 years. And so all this stuff is coming together and it's just pushing us and pushing us and pushing us until we're confusing. We might be increasing our intuition due to the rise in electromagnetic energy it's actually playing with our brain waves and waking us up but at the same time if you've got that sense of things aren't right or think the, the world is going to end next week or I might get shot if I go to the supermarket you know it, it's it's going to be a very confusing time for a lot of people and if you're not on solid ground in your own mental health I can see how this is really compounding for people Oh, yeah, we are definitely living in an age of anxiety. Uh, Natasha Rosewood is my guest. We'll come back and uh, we'll talk about adventures in Libya, among other things. (laughs) Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We're back with Natasha Rosewood. So what were you doing in Libya? Good question, Richard. Uh, a lot of my family thought I had a, a suicide uh, death wish. Um, but what happened in the UK in the 
early 80s was a recession and the airline I was flying for at that time, Freddie Laker, he was an amazing pioneer and actually some major airlines conspired to make him go bankrupt. So we did. And so there was a glut of um, air crew living in the south of England, Sussex. And so a lot of us were just taking any flying jobs that were going in other countries. And the ex-chief stewardess of Laker called me and said, hey, would you like to go to, first she offered me Lagos. And at that time I did have a job. And I said, thanks, but no thanks. And then I called her back the next week because the job I had went south. And so she said, well, I've got a job in Libya. How do you feel about that? And I, funny enough, I just read a large article on Libya about Gaddafi and how he had come to power and really actually brought a lot of wealth to the country. And he had given every family at that time a house, a car. He'd built schools. So for quite a while in that country, he was a hero. So I went out there just after that time, and he was starting it then in early, uh, sorry, November of 1982, I think, to lose some popularity. Right, right. And um, so what what happened while you were there? Okay, <laughs> yes. So, uh, gosh, it's another book, really. But um, So we, there were 20 of us, and the idea was that we were flying passengers from Tripoli in Libya. So we were based in a hotel in Tripoli, and we were flying them to Saudi Arabia, to um, Jeddah, uh, and these passengers then bust up from Jeddah to Mecca for their Hajj pilgrimage. And then we would fly also to pick them up. So we were like basically a bus service uh, between Tripoli and Saudi Arabia. We also went into other countries uh, in, in Europe, Greece, Prague. Uh, we landed in Damascus, places like that. And uh, then we would fly back into Tripoli and to say it was an adventure is really putting it mildly it was very interesting for me from a spiritual perspective because um, I was escaping a psycho mother at that time and I felt a huge relief that she could not contact me people could not phone into the country and it was very difficult to get a call out of the country so we were kind of isolated there but for me that gave me a great sense of peace and I have to say it changed me drastically because we were in a culture where we had no control we had nobody taking care of us really uh, we were used to having flight deck, you know, when we flew to L.A. or New York or Miami, Barbados, to kind of take care of us. But we were kind of 20 women on our own. And that was, there were some very terrifying moments, but there were some really wonderful moments as well, because I had to, and we all had to surrender. We absolutely had to surrender to what was going on at the time. And those women that didn't, uh, 10 of us were asked to stay an extra month, and I was one of the ones asked to stay. The other 10 were having difficulty in handling the environment. So it was a good thing they went back to the UK and, mm. and we stayed. And we, uh, the other flight deck in Libya that we met, the Irish Aer Lingus pilots who were wonderful, they came up with a saying which they called IBM and it stands for Inshallah Bukra Malish. And in Arabic, Inshallah means tomorrow. Bukra, sorry, Inshallah means leave it up to Allah or God. Bukra means tomorrow and Malish means it doesn't matter anyway. 
Hmm. So you develop this philosophy and I have to say that was one of the, I've traveled a lot and I've lived in, you know, four or five other countries for a while. That was one of the most, um, enlightening experiences for me. And, uh, could you very quickly share one of the, what you described as as a terrifying moment? Oh yes. Well, there were a few of those. (laughs) Where do I begin? Um, there was one time where, um, I was with a girlfriend and she uh, had befriended uh, an Irish civil engineer and he spoke very good Arabic, German and obviously English. I speak fluent German and I befriended his uh, colleague who didn't speak any English. So he was very happy to meet me and be able to talk to somebody apart from his colleague in German. So we had um, a dinner I cooked to dinner one night in, uh, I'll just call him David's apartment. And uh, we were sitting around. We'd finished eating. You're not allowed to drink in Libya, of course, because it's uh, a Muslim country. And there was a knock at the door. And uh, these two um, Libyans came in. And they were with us for about three hours. And we didn't know what was going to happen to us at the end of it. So it was a little scary. I'm to just gonna, I'm going to jump in here. Pardon the yes. interruption. We'll leave this as a cliffhanger. We'll okay. uh, we'll come back on the other side and find out what happened. Natasha Rosewood, my guest, psychic, medium, ghostbuster, past life regression therapist. We'll talk more in a moment. Stay with us. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Natasha Rosewood is here and she's, uh, well, among other things, uh, she's telling us about her uh, adventures in Libya. So you were having a dinner with this uh, German gentleman in his apartment in Libya, knock at the door, two Libyan officials, I guess, show up. How did, what did they want? Well, we went sure, and that was a scary thing. So my girlfriend and I had picked up a little Arabic, and we were trying to explain that uh, why we were there in Libya. They were very curious about that. And we tried to explain we were working for Libyan Arab Airlines, which actually in those days was essentially owned by Gaddafi. And... Um, they wanted to know which hotel we were staying at and why we were there in that apartment with men because in Libya at that time, a man and a woman, unless you were married, weren't allowed to be in the same room together. And if you were found, sometimes they would do different things. They would send you home. They would exile you to Malta. They would throw you in jail. You weren't really sure of what would happen. So that experience was very unnerving, but we made it back to our hotel and nothing, no harm was done for which I am eternally grateful and there were no repercussions from that so in the moment it was one of those times when you think oh my gosh, you know, we're going to disappear and nobody's going to know what happened to us Right, right uh, w- Meanwhile, were your psychic, develop- your psychic abilities developing while you were there? I, um, I think I've always I call it having my ear to the ground, Richard. I feel like I'm, I always have my ear to the ground. I'm always listening to energy, paying attention to people, um, being on alert. I think many psychics have come out of 
dysfunctional or dangerous situations or traumas. And that's where they've learned to hone their instincts. And I think I did the same thing. So I would say I was very much on alert. So the night after that event, for example, um, a German friend, another German friend said, oh, come out to our German camp and let's go drink some beer. And I went, no, I don't think so. <laughs> I think I'm just going to stay where I am. Thank you very much. And so whether that was my fear or my intuition, I just felt like, no, I just needed to be really uh, very cautious after that. And I was, and I got home safe. So Do I you, think it served me well. Right, right. And, and um when did your psychic ability then really come to the fore when you were, you were, uh, well, you, you mentioned a reading that you did that ended up being sort of spot on. Uh, but when did that really start to, to, to come to the, to the fore? I think when I came to Canada and after I started, I felt a sense of freedom being in Canada because um, although England, you know, people say, oh, you're an English psychic, you must be really good. Um, at that time, spirituality was definitely under the radar. Um, psychics were kind of, you know, an underground movement. But when I came to Canada in the early 80s, it was seemed to be um, burgeoning. Spirituality, there were psychics everywhere. And I think I felt a sense of permission to then be psychic. And then because I did and I started doing more readings – um, and these people were coming back to me and saying, oh, my God, Natasha, what you told me came true. And I went, it did? Okay, that's interesting. Um, you know, I was still telling myself even then that it was still a coincidence. Um, but it just really, I kept getting more and more validation from people that I read at the time or later on. Um, I would say in my mid-30s, um, I, by, by the time I was 35, I was knew I had something and it was really big and I did want to, I put up my shingle, but then I started attracting very strange people and I went, this is not what I want. So I closed it down and I did that a few times. I opened it up and closed it down and I hadn't had any training. I hadn't had any formal training and the only person I went to see was a psychic researcher, Frank, I forget his name, but he's in my first book and he just told me how I needed to really close down my energy wasn't when I wasn't doing readings or in my psychic mode and just to be and to ground myself and to protect myself. And that was such valuable advice because I went on from there to uh, feel okay with it. It was, wasn't until I was in my early 40s and I was living in Whistler that I really said, okay, I'll do this. And how does it work for you? It was, I mean, it started off, I think you mentioned palmistry. Yes. Uh, and, but, but when you started to develop your psychic abilities, uh, to a certain level, was it still palmistry or how did you work? How did, did you need a, a, a personal item from someone or how did it work? Well, actually, Rich, this story goes back to Libya because, and there's a story in my first book about this where I'm sitting at the back of the plane and we did a lot of sitting around waiting for people and passengers and flight deck to show up. And I read uh, one of my girlfriends and she just stuck a palm out and she said, you read palms, don't you? And I said, okay. And up until then, I just sensed and I'd read the lines. But in her palm, I saw a picture like a mini movie. And I remember jumping up and down and saying, I can see, I can see, you know, like I'd suddenly got my eyesight back. And from that point on, I started to, when I took the hand, it's kind of a more of a kinesthetic sense of 
their emotions, depression or joy or whatever that was, and then also seeing pictures to go with those emotions. So it was like watching a movie or clips of a movie for me. Hmm. And the lines then became secondary. And they still are to this day. When I see a client now and I do a lot of phone readings for people all over the world, I just tune into the voice now. So I've really honed my intuitiveness, if you like. And then when I see the client in person, I will read the palm as well because it's very interesting to them. Um, so it comes to me, I think, A, from their six levels of consciousness and their spirit guides and angels and my spirit guides and angels so I'm getting information coming in from different levels of consciousness different dimensions and I can just tell by the feeling of it if it's right or if it's not right do you believe we're all psychic I believe we can all be psychic yes I believe we're all intuitive and I think it's like being an artist or being able to sing. I think we could all sing, some of us very badly, but if we get training or we give ourselves permission to sing well, I think we can be trained to do it. And it's almost like it's there. And once we give ourselves permission, we unleash it and then it's out of the bag and then we can hone it and train it. So it works for us well. Does it have anything to do with the, the pineal gland? I, I hear this all the time. Open up, open up I, your third eye and all that. Yeah, I have heard that too, but the strange thing for me is I don't really feel anything in the in my uh, in my third eye. Now, for me, it's a full body um I use my body to sense and I think our spirits speak to us through our bodies. Our spirits tell us that's why we get sick because our spirits are telling us our spirits are out of whack so we get disease in our body. Um and I really listen to all of the information that's coming through me, I almost feel like I put myself in the other person's physical being and in their, you know, their soul, their spirit, their subconscious, their ego, their alpha, and their higher consciousness. So I'm kind of in there and I'm taking a good walk around and feeling everything. To me, it's about all the brain waves. Um, Again, in the first book, I describe what I experience when I read somebody and that what their mind looks like to me or their energy. So the soul is on the bottom of, it's like a big pyramid. Soul's on the bottom. Then is the spirit of the person that they are in this lifetime and their personality, the gifts and the challenges. Then the subconscious data, which is everything they've experienced from past lives and in this lifetime, plus their current belief systems, which are really driving the show here in this lifetime. Above that, the alpha or the what I call the in-between. That's where the intuitive intuitive is strongest I feel and then in the uh, ego state you know we call that the bee brain because that's so tiny and that's the one that really separates um, ourselves from everything else and then the higher self which is the being that we're in the process of becoming so I feel like I'm kind of flicking if you like through brain waves or levels of consciousness or dimensions whatever you want to call that and picking up on all these different frequencies and seeing what is being projected into the future. So I like to call myself like a weather forecaster. Based on current conditions today, this is probably what's going to show up next week or 10 years from now. Mm. But like the weather forecaster, I can be wrong on the timing. The thing might still happen, but it might be Wednesday instead of Thursday. That's pretty good. All right, we'll take a time out. Uh, we'll carry on into the next hour. Natasha Rosewood stays with us.